Well, amen this morning. You may be seated. And wow, Brother Mike's pulling the pulpit over. Uh, turn to Colossians uh, this morning, if you would, please. Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse 9 is where we're going to pick up. And this morning, uh, I'll be preaching on in creation. Uh, he is preeminent, and uh, we have been singing about that all morning, and so uh, just hope you're tuned in to this amazing God that uh, we serve. Uh, Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper says this, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Uh, the Bible says that we were made for him, and uh, he is the one who has created us. John Calvin, uh, on God's sustaining power, if God should withdraw his hand a little, all things would immediately perish and dissolve into nothing. Uh, so God has created it, and God is the one who holds it. He sustains it. And what I love about Colossians is Paul, he's not trying to destroy uh, the false teachers by tearing them down. What he does is he takes a different approach. He rises above their teaching. He rises above what they're saying, and he literally is just bragging on Jesus. He's like, so you say this, but here, this is who he is. And so I think we can learn something just from that is that we don't always have to win every argument uh, in our own minds. All we have to do is elevate Jesus. Uh, Jesus doesn't need a marketing strategy. He doesn't need a, uh, um, somebody going around saying, man, this is what you should do, Jesus. All you have to do is just lift up Jesus. Uh, the Bible says when he's lifted up, what happens? All men are drawn nigh to him. And we know that at the very name of Jesus, that enemy, he flees, demons tremble. Uh, the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess in uh, heaven, on earth, and under the earth. So we don't have to fight this battle other than just bragging on Jesus. And that's exactly what Paul uh, is doing here. So I, I just want to jump in and brag on Jesus along with Paul this morning, uh, if that's okay. Uh, verse 9 says this, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you um, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed or translated us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. And he is above all, uh, before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he, Jesus, may have uh, the preeminence. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. And God, it's just a privilege uh, to stand here and just simply say the name Jesus. 
uh, wow, God, just the power in that name, uh, Lord, is just amazing. So, Lord, I just pray this morning as we just simply elevate uh, Jesus in this room, uh, that, God, you'll do what your word says, that you'll draw people to you. Uh, God, that you will uh, heal the brokenhearted, that you would restore and deliver and reconcile. God, all the things that, Lord, you do. And so, God, we just want to see you uh, work. Uh, God, just move among us this morning. Uh, Lord, we praise you and thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. This is known as uh, one of Paul's prisons, prison prayers. And you have to think about a man sitting in prison, uh, chained between two guards, and he's not praying for his release. He's not praying for better food or better conditions. He says, for this reason, we also, uh, since the day we heard, we do not cease to pray. So what was he doing? I had this kind of broken up into two parts, Paul's petition and then Paul's praise. Paul's petition is the first thing, and he says this, for this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. And to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So the first part is just Paul's petition. Um, everybody in the room, I, I'm, I'm assuming most people in the room anyway, knows the famous Mary Poppins song, A Spoonful of Sugar Makes the Medicine Go Down. Uh, I was reading that the other day and this, this really nerdy thing, I started singing it. I looked it up and listened to them sing it, and it's probably kind of weird if Brother Ken heard it in his office. Like, what is Matthew doing? But I was thinking about that whole line, a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. I want to change that just a minute this morning and talk about this false teaching. A spoonful of sugar also makes the poison go down. Paul is aware of the false teachers uh, that have crept into the church there in Colossae and with their lies. And the thing is, is Satan is, is so deceptive because he likes to use Christian vocabulary, but he doesn't always use the Christian dictionary. And if you think about that this way, uh, Martin Luther kind of sums it up. He says, where God builds a church, there the devil will also build a chapel. So when God is doing something, he builds a church, you better believe the enemy's close and he's going to build something that looks really close to it. And a lot of times people fall for it. 1978, uh, many of you will know the story. You'll, you'll know the catchphrase, don't drink the Kool-Aid. Uh, but Jim Jones, in 1978, the People's Temple, uh, all of his followers, he convinced them to drink the Kool-Aid. That's where I got the idea, a spoonful of sugar makes the poison uh, go down. And here was a guy who, man, was, was a charismatic person. Uh, he was hitting on some good points. He was teaching that, you know, that racism and poverty could be overcome in a time where it seemed like racism, you know, was, was a stronghold. And he's teaching these things, and he's telling people, People, hey, just follow me. We're going to be able to overcome all these things. And it was very attracting, um, attractive to various backgrounds, especially people of different ethnic backgrounds whenever he would preach an integrated congregation. And a lot of people uh, loved that idea, so they, they just began to follow him. Thing is, is eventually he was ordained into the, the disciples of Christ, a Protestant denomination. And so they ordained him and he's teaching this, he's leading these people. And in 1978, in November, uh, he convinced his followers to drink the Kool-Aid. 
900 people died. Many more were sick, but as you read the story, there were parents who were taking syringes and filling them up with this Kool-Aid and putting it into their babies, and their babies were passing away. And I see we have to be careful because a lot of times that's how the enemy works. He takes just enough truth and he mixes it with a lie so that we'll swallow it. And a lot of times that's the way he works against churches and that's what he did. And that's what was going on here is they were taking just enough of the truth and they were trying to, to twist the truth and they would take it, they would put it with a lie and many people we're falling for it. And if you look in verse 3 through 6, he tells us the reason he's praying. He says, for this reason also, notice what he says in 3, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints. Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit and is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. For this reason, why? Because any time the gospel is being preached and people are being saved and communities and cities being changed, get ready because the enemy is going to show up. He doesn't always show up riding down 64 Highway, throwing darts at the church, a frontal attack. Most of the time, he comes into the church very methodically, very subtle, and he attacks the church from within. And that's exactly what was going on here in this church. So Paul is praying because he understands, man, the gospel has been elevated. People are being saved. Lives are being changed. And, and things are going great. And then all of a sudden, the enemy, he shows up. So what's Paul praying for? Well, first, his spiritual vision. Spiritual vision is a very vital part of the Christian life. Proverbs 29, 18 says, where there is no vision, the people perish. Now, I understand we use that verse a lot dealing with, like, if we as a church don't have a vision for Fayette County and the world, then the people around us perish. So we try to keep the vision uh, pushed in front of us. That's why we spend the whole month, uh, the first of the year, talking about the vision uh, for the year. And this year it served the Lord with gladness. But notice this, and this kind of hit me this week. The lack of vision is tied directly to people perishing. Because it says where there is no vision, the people perish. So if there is no vision, then we're responsible for people perishing. So we must have vision for all of our families. But I want you to think about it this way just for a minute. I believe that also means that we have to have a spiritual vision for our own life. Uh, that's the way we know the will of God. If we don't have vision for our own life, then we are blind to God's will. So what does he use? He uses this term filled with the knowledge, filled with the spiritual knowledge. And it's, it's not the idea of a drop here and a drop there, right? Um, you know, the word filled has this, this idea that means overflowing. You, you are, are filled to the, the top, and, it, and that's what it implies. It implies that we're con consumed by, we're overflowing. It, it permeates everything about us. 
Now, I'm going to use a word here that doesn't necessarily go with what I'm about to say, but just stay with me because we are in Fed County and you'll get the word. Uh, how many of you have ever been so thirsty, like you can't wait to get your hands on a bottle of water and just chug it? Come on. I see like four or five. You can amen. I can't see in the back, so you can say amen. There's times in our life where we're just spent, man, and, the, and we cannot wait to get our hands on something to drink. Um, I just remember one time, the first time we ever went into the jungle of Ecuador, we ran out of water uh, coming out, and there was a six-hour canoe ride in the blazing hot sun, and we had no water. And that was, that was very difficult. When we get to the, to the end of the, the river where we had parked, uh, there was a little store. And I just remember it was late at night. The lady was in the bed, but I just go and start beating on the door. And she opened up her, her little store, and she had this cooler full of water. And I bought every bottle of water the lady had. And I just remember just chugging one after the other. I did share with everybody, but I made sure I was full first <laughs> then I did it but I just remember chugging that water and we use a term man you 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 know you've drank so much water that I feel like my what my eyeballs are floating it's kind of the the way we use that filled with knowledge is the idea of chugging the word of God the water of the word to where we're filled and flowing over it can't just be that we get a drop on Sunday morning and then a drop next Sunday morning and then hopefully if we're really good, we may get a sip on Wednesdays or whatever. It's the idea of being overflowed with the Word of God filling us with this wonderful knowledge. Second um, Corinthians 4, 4 says that the God of this age has blinded people's mind and that we must take our minds into captivity. Where's the first place the enemy attacks? He attacks where man is, this word, ignorant, unlearned, where we don't have knowledge. He comes in and he exploits our ignorance. We've seen this all the way back into Adam, that there is the enemy coming in and attacking us and putting question marks where God has put periods and having us sow just a little bit of doubt in our minds where we're like, did God really mean this or is this what he's saying? And without spiritual knowledge, we can easily fall to those things. That's why we stress here at our church that, man, read your Bible. Don't read, we don't tell you to read the Bible because God's keeping some point system and Pastor Ken and I are going to get a special crown in heaven because we tell you to read your Bible. We want you to read your Bible because it fills you with spiritual knowledge so when the enemy comes, you can defend yourself. That's why we say join community groups. Be a part of a group that is that is going through the word together, discussing it, even sometimes having tough discussions to learn about the word and how to defend the word. One-on-one -on -one discipleship, get with somebody. Iron sharpening iron, get with somebody that can pour into you the word of God and that you can pour back in and then spend time in the word of God yourself. This is how we are filled with spiritual knowledge because we have no choice that if we're going to thrive in this culture especially in the days ahead, that we have to be filled with spiritual knowledge. 
1 John 4, 1 says this, believe, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits where they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world, and they have. So Paul here says, Be filled with spiritual knowledge of his will, in verse 9, and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. And I told you, Paul is not trying to tear them down. He's actually using Gnostic words here. He's using words that were very much a part of the, the Gnostics' vocabulary. He uses the word wisdom, which is the Greek word Sophia, meaning discerning. It's the idea of having application of knowledge because a person can have knowledge and not wisdom. But then he goes on and he uses this word understanding. It's the Greek word synesis, which means the ability to look at things critically and objectively, discerning truth from false. An example of that. Here at Warren Community Church, we believe that when Jesus saves you, that you are filled with the Spirit of God at the moment of conversion. There is no second and third uh, filling of the Spirit. There is no special baptism of the Holy Spirit. We teach that when you are saved, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. So Sophia and Sinesis gives us the ability, wisdom and understanding that when somebody out in the world says, man, you know what? You, you can be saved, but you really don't have the Holy Spirit until you are baptized with the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. Boom, right there you should know. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. It, ha it helps us discern truth from error. And he's telling them, hey, I need you to understand I'm praying for you to be filled with spiritual knowledge. I need you to be filled with spiritual understanding and how to apply that in your life. The second thing is he's talking about is a practical walk. Notice what he says in verse 10, that you what may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So a practical walk, it's our outward life. Uh, John Phillips says if that outward life is pleasing to God, it will be beyond criticism by men. So if, you're, if your life is like, God, I just want to please you. And, and, and as long as you're good with what my life is, it really doesn't matter what everybody else says. And so he doesn't tell us walk worthy so that man can pat you on the back. Walk worthy so you can get an attaboy. Walk worthy so that the people in the community uh, uh, tell you how amazing you are. No, walk worthy, fully pleasing God. And let me tell you this. If you're going to please God, most of the time you're going to offend man. It's just the truth. So we walk in a way. When Jesus saves a person, they begin a new walk. They begin a new direction. It's that idea of getting off of the broad road that leads to destruction and getting on the narrow road that leads to life everlasting. And this looks completely different than the old life. This is us walking in new life. And now we walk worthy of him who called us, pleasing him, bearing fruit so that everybody around us may see that. And I just want to read something out of Ephesians. Uh, this is just how this walk looks. It's just a perfect example. Ephesians 4, 1 says, I therefore, 
the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So how do we walk fully pleasing God? We walk that way by being long suffering, by loving one another, by being gentle. Right? That's what he says. So we walk to please him, fruitful in every good work. It's John 15 being played out. John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. So we are connected to the vine. And just horticulture 101, the branch produces the fruit according to the vine it is attached to, right? If, you, if, the, if the branch does not produce fruit, the Bible says, and then even just simple horticulture, you prune that branch off, right? Because if it's not producing, it is taking nutrients that can go to places that do produce. So wouldn't it be odd today if you walked up to a grapevine and it was cantaloupes hanging off of it? That'd be disturbing in a way. Like, man, what in the world happened? Wouldn't it be even more disturbing for a person who claims to be attached to the vine producing fruit of the world? I mean, that's walking worthy. If I say that I'm saved, if I claim to be a child of God, a follower of Jesus, shouldn't my life produce fruit according to the vine? And he does not produce gossip. He doesn't produce bitterness. He doesn't produce unforgiveness. He produces patience and love and, and long-suffering and gentleness, all those things. That's what he produces. So our walk, our practical walk. Another thing is the glorious victory. Look in verse 12 with me. It says this, that we're strengthened in all power, uh, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance. We are strengthened with all might, verse 11, according to his glorious power. We win. You, you can sit here today, and, and that's what sometimes I don't understand. Like, Christians just look like the most defeated people in all the world. And if you've read Revelation, if you understand that all of this is going to come to an end, and one day we're literally going to be around the, the throne of God looking at Jesus in the flesh, we should be excited. We should say, man, we win. I remember playing basketball, and man, there were teams that we would play that we knew going into the game we were going to win. Um, I won't call any names because, uh, you know, maybe people from both schools here, but there were there was teams around locally that when we played them, we knew going we were going to get the W. Now, do you think by any stretch of the imagination that the other team laid down no their goal was that if we can beat them and knock them off of of this winning streak they have they're going to go all in they're going to go as hard as they could go and i remember times walking into those gyms and and, and having that kind of attitude that like we got this we're going to win and then the next thing you know they're like really playing hard and giving us a game because their number one goal is to knock us down. It was literally having a target on your back is what it is. Listen, the enemy knows that he's lost. 
But do you think he's just going to stop playing the game? What he wants to do is give you the big loss so he can taunt the father. So he comes at us with every tactic and all the power of hell. He comes after us and he wants us to lose, but we win. But we have to play like victors. We have to come in and we have to go all in because here's the thing. He wants to dominate your thoughts. He wants to cause despair. He wants us to give up. He wants to discredit our testimony. He wants to do all of those things because his most coveted trophy is now not the throne of God, but that God's children mess up. That's what he wants. That's what he's after. That's why when you're having conversations with people and they come up and they're trying to gossip, you have to just go, no, I can't, I can't get into that. Or, or, or whenever that bitterness starts to flare up in your heart because somebody said something about you, you just have to say, God, I can't give over to that because if I do that, then the enemy, he's going to taunt the father. And so we have to. So what does he do? He says, hey, you're strengthened with all might. Not just all might, this might is according to his glorious power. This is not just any might. This is like the might according to the power of God. And the, and the, and the word strength, and I love it, is, and I may say it wrong, it's kind of weird sounding, dinamu. <laughs> I like that word. And it means to enable. It means to make strong. So God has strengthened us. He has enabled us. He has made us strong. And the word might is the word dynamis. And it carries the idea of not only has God made me strong, God has given me the ability to carry out the strength in which he's given me. And if that's not enough, the word power here, which is not used a whole lot, is the word kratos. And it means ruling power. So God has made me strong and given me the ability to, to carry it out according to the most powerful being ever. And his name's Jesus. So the next time the enemy comes at you with depression, the next time the enemy comes at you with inadequacy or despair, you just stand up and go, I am strengthened with all might according to the glorious power of God. In essence, it's Romans 8, 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? And then Isaiah 54, 17, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue which rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. So the next time the enemy comes and he's trying to attack you, you got the target on your back as a victor, you just turn and say, I am strengthened with all might according to his glorious power. It's basically saying when the world says you can't, God says you can. The second thing is Paul's praise. Notice in verse 13. It says, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. Paul's praise, verse 13, talks about our position. It's an act of placing or arranging. And here's the thing, everybody wants position. It doesn't matter who you are. No, nobody starts out on the bottom and says, man, I'm going to stay on the bottom. I, I, I'm just, I like hanging out here. It, it, the old adage is, is, is nobody just wants a jersey. They want to play, yeah. right? If a person is content 
with having just a jersey, then they're not a competitor. But competitors compete. And so here, everybody fights for some type of position, whether it's work, whether it's a place in line. You ever watch people try to, like, I hate to use this as an example because it's really not a good one anymore, but like at Walmart, and you probably do it too. I mean, we're all sinners. But like, you're wanting to break in line some kind of way. You want to get a position in front of somebody else because you don't want to stay there all day. I, I, that's a bad analogy because now you have to check out all your own groceries. So it really doesn't, doesn't matter. Anyway, that really failed. It's bad. We can admit when we're bad. Regardless of whatever it is, people want position. And oftentimes people are doing whatever it takes in order to get that position. But I love this because with Jesus, we have a position in Christ that I don't have to stress over. I don't have to fight over. I don't have to be the first in line. I don't have to do any of that. I don't have to earn it. I can't lose it. It was bought by his blood and sealed with the promise. So he says that right here, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of the son of his love. So what that says is one, we are rescued. Notice what thir the first part of 13 says. He has delivered us from the power of darkness. It's the, it's the word rescue, and it literally means rescue from a severe danger. And I just got to thinking about this and, and these are two instances. There's so many rescues that have taken place throughout time, but these are two that I personally just remember. How many remember um, 1987, uh, baby Jessica, the little 18-month-old that fell into her into the well at her, in her aunt's backyard in Midland, Texas? Y'all remember that? If you remember that, say amen. amen. All right, there's a lot of people in 1987 in here, right? For 56 hours, rescue workers worked tirelessly to save her. Do you remember this? If you were in here and, and really old enough to really grasp it, do you remember being glued to your TV? Like nobody left their TV. I remember like in my house, uh, my mom would cook dinner every night and the one thing that we did as a family is we sat at the table, but that night we broke the rules and we sat in the living room because we were watching to see if Jessica was going to be rescued. And, and it, President Reagan even said this about it. Every American became her godparents at that moment. And it literally gripped our nation. Y'all remember that rescue? How about 2018? The Thai soccer team, the 12 players with their assistant coach who entered the cave... Uh, just explored. supposed to be about an hour. The rains came, flooded the cave. They entered on June the 23rd, and they were trapped. This became, now we're in 2018, so it became a global media sensation. Uh, everybody was watching. Everybody was trying to figure this out. L listen to, to this. Their rescue included 10,000 people. It was 100 divers, 100 government agencies, 900 police officers, 2,000 soldiers, 10 police helicopters, 7 ambulances, and one Royal Navy SEAL lost his life trying to rescue these boys. And from June the 23rd to July the 8th, it 
captured everybody's attention. And on July the 8th, they started bringing them out. So for two days, July the 8th through July the 10th, they were rescued. And this captured everybody's attention. These moments were gut-wrenching, and they were tense, and they were urgent. And, and I don't want to take anything away from those rescues, but they diminish compared to the rescue that Jesus came on. As much as they grip us, as much as it is urgent and tense, they pale in comparison to Jesus' rescue mission. Because it didn't matter how many people came to rescue you from sin, they could have never done it. It was humanly impossible for us to rescue ourselves from the grip of Satan and from the guilt and penalty of sin. And although their rescues were amazing and they lived, our rescue has such paramount consequences. Why? Because he rescued us from hell. A lot of people don't talk about hell anymore, but I can tell you today that if you're in here and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you reject the rescue of Jesus, you will spend eternity in a real place called hell. Where Jesus himself said that the, the fire's never quenched and the worm never dies. And that you're going to be in this dark torment forever, separated from any opportunity of ever ever being saved and Jesus stepped down out of heaven and said I'll go man that rescue effort should grip our hearts it, it, it should consume us but not only was it a rescue from spending eternity in hell let's look at it from a positive spin it was a rescue that puts us in the presence of Jesus forever <laughs> No matter what the devil wants to do, he can never strip us from the presence of our Lord and Savior. This rescue, y'all, this is what he did for us. That's why I love Psalm 40, 1 through 3. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me, and he heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet up on a rock, and he established my goings. He put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will fear, and I will trust in the Lord. So he rescued us, but not only that, he removed us. Notice what it says. He delivered us from the power of darkness. But God didn't just send Jesus to deliver us for us to wander aimlessly. He now translates us into what? The kingdom of the son of his love. The word translated literally means to remove it is actually the, the picture of a conquering king in those days when they would go into a city and they would conquer it. They would lead their captives out. They would translate them out of their, or their home and take them into their city, uh, parading them through the streets, laughing at them and mocking them and doing all those things. But he transports us into the kingdom of his dear son. He removes us from darkness, but he takes us into light. He takes us into the, the kingdom of light. That's 1 Peter 1. I mean, 1 Peter 2, verse 9. 
uh, Jen said it a while ago, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim praises of him who what called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He translated us into his kingdom. Ephesians 1 verse 3, that we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus in the heavenlies. Whenever God sees us, he already sees us in position in heaven with Jesus. So he removes us. You can say it like this, earthly rulers translated their defeated, but Jesus transported the winners. He takes us and then we are redeemed. Now notice what verse 14 says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. First Peter 2, 9, I mean, first uh, Peter 1, 18 through 19. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with what? The precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or spot. I remember growing up, uh, all the old country pe preachers that my dad was around, especially in Mississippi, they used this term, it just gets gooder and gooder. I mean, it's one thing to be rescued. It's a, one thing to be translated, but we are redeemed. Rivers of blood flowed from the temple in the Old Testament. You got to think about that. What a grueling task it must have been. And what a fearful task for the high priest. Pastor Ken mentioned it last week to sacrifice those animals on the Day of Atonement. Research says that there was over 300,000 lambs that would be sacrificed on that day and that the blood would run like a stream and turn the river red. And this was done year after year, year after year. The term covered their sin or rolled back their sin is the term. And no matter what it no matter how good it was, it would never bring redemption. In Hebrews 10, verse 1, for the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. Verse 4 in Hebrews 10, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Verse 12, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sit down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. A shadow of a key can never set a prisoner free. A shadow of a meal can never fill a hungry person. The shadow of the steeple can never save a soul. And the shadow of the cross can never redeem someone. It is by the blood of Jesus, the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world, that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. He who was cursed because he hanged on a tree, it was this man. It was his precious blood that redeems us today. So our position is that we are redeemed, we are in Christ, we are victors, and we are sealed until that day. Amen. And then you see his preeminence. 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and by him. So his deity, and this is an eternal subject that I don't even have close to time to unpack because I need to hurry up. But John 1, 1 uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. John 1, 14, and this Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. The man at the wedding, the man at the well was also the creator of the universe. And Jesus is the message, right? Jesus is the, He is the message. And, and so He talks about His existence, the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word. Before there was ever any created matter, there was Jesus. His essence, he was the word of God. He is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews calls him the express image of his person. Think about this. When a new baby is born, it's a new creation. That baby is now a new personality. But when Jesus was born, he wasn't a new creation. He's always been. And this is his claim, his claim to deity. And, and the mistake comes when people try to figure out his humanity and his deity. They try to find a starting and a finishing place of both. But do you remember Jesus' robe? It, it was one solid robe. It didn't have seams. And, and you will kill yourself trying to find a seam in the humanity and the deity of Jesus. He is who he claims to be, and he is the Son of God. He is God. That's his claim, and that's what we must believe. Here's the cool thing is Jesus is just bringing God into focus. If you've seen me, you have what? Seen the Father. And so his deity, but look at his claim. Verse 16, 17, all things are made, what? By him, through him, and for him. He is a creator of all things. He possesses this, this power. It's not a matter of reasoning or revelation. It's just the truth, right? You, you can spend the rest of your life trying to reason it out. Uh, scientists have been doing it for decades, for millennial. Uh, guess what? That's uh, just the truth. He is a creator of all things. Uh, he spoke it into existence. He owns every blade of grass. Man, I thought like, wow. You ever sit down and just thought about it? Every blade of grass is Jesus's. Every particle of cosmic dust is Jesus. Every water that falls from the sky and every lake and river and ocean on the earth belongs to Jesus. Why? He says all things through him and for him. It brings him glory. Every particle of sand to every tall mountain brings glory to Jesus. Every drop of water brings glory. Every animal that's ever been created, even down to the grasshopper, brings glory to Jesus. Every time the wind blows through the trees, it is the trees screaming glory to God. Every baby that cries is screaming glory to God. It is through him and for him. It is all his. And then you have his preeminence in the church. And man, what a glorious day we talk about in history. Uh, think about this. In, in Acts chapter 2, there was something bird that would impact both the earth and the heavenlies. It wasn't just a group of guys uh, preaching off of a rooftop. Uh, man, this has impacted all of human history. And not only impacted history, it's impacted the heavenlies. 
Um, and, and I love the fact that it says here, he is the head of what? The body, the church. And if you really slow and break that down, it reads like this. He, emphatic, is an undying fact, the head, an inspiring, controlling, deciding, sustaining power of the body linked to him, the head in an organic unity, the church, an instrument through which he asserts, asserts his headship and his mission. It was Jesus who said, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. Have you ever thought about it? You hear people all the time go, well, that's my church. And usually when they say that, it's kind of in a negative condemnation. Well, that's my church. One, you didn't die for it. It's not yours. You belong to it. It's not yours. But have you ever thought that if God would have given us the power for the church to be ours, the gates of hell would prevail? One of the reasons churches close is because it's become man's church instead of God's church. And when it becomes God's church, when it becomes man's church over God's church, then the enemy can prevail. He will win. But I'm glad that we belong to his church and that Warren Community is a part of his church, the building, the bride, and the body. That's how he describes it. So why all of this? So I'm wrapping up today. Why are we preaching all of these weeks on the preeminence of Christ? Because we want to lift him up and let the world know that he stands unrivaled. He is first place. He has the highest rank. Some give him a place. I was reading this this week. They open their hearts and accept him as Savior. Others giving prominence. He has general control, but they reserve the right not to go all the way. But if you give him preeminence, he is the king of kings, the Lord of lords over all that they are. A.W. Tozer says those that do great things for God are the ones who make God great in their lives. Yeah. So does he have preeminence in your life? And here is the greatest part of all of it is are you pursuing the right person he has created us he he is he has made us why through him we are created for him we are created and i just want to wrap it up like this and i'm no expert at this i, I read it and researched it and made sure i fact checked it if that's what you want to say you take the greyhounds, for instance, the dogs that race. It says they take a rabbit and they basically at the starting gate taunt those dogs with the, with, the, with the fake rabbit. And whenever they open the gates and the dogs come out of the gates, they're chasing that rabbit, right? And they're chasing that rabbit with everything they are. Very, to me, majestic, just kind of powerful animal. And they're chasing that rabbit. And it says very rarely... Do they ever catch the rabbit? But from time to time, there's a glitch in the system, and one might catch it. And as you read and you study that, you kind of read through what happens, they say that when they catch it, 
that they basically don't allow those dogs to race anymore because they realize that the rabbit was fake and it was no good. And so then once they open up the gate after they've tasted the fake rabbit, they won't run after it. They won't chase it. And you say, what's a greyhound got to do with the preeminence of Christ? I was trying to figure that out too, but... What it boils down to is that dog was pursuing the wrong thing. And when they caught it, they realized it wasn't what they thought it was. And today you have heard about this amazing God, Jesus, who is the preeminence of all things. And so many people, including us in here today, spend so much time chasing what they think is the one thing that will fulfill them. And when they catch it, if they do, they realize that they wasted a lot of time. And I believe that's why Paul is screaming from the mountaintops. He is preeminent. I believe he's screaming as loud as he can. This is our God. This is who he is. He loves us. I believe he's screaming, Jesus, 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 the sweetest name I know. I believe he stands on the mountaintop and he just brags on Jesus. Why? Because he wants us to stop chasing the wrong thing. And if you really want the one this morning who can fulfill you, his name is Jesus. And just to show you how important you are, go read Genesis chapter 1. It says, And God said, and God said, and God created, and God said, and then when it comes to man, it simply says God formed. God didn't just speak you into existence. God reached down and formed you. It's a personal touch. And then he didn't just look at Adam and go breathe. The Bible says that he breathed life into him, making him a living soul. And that same God that forms you in your mother's womb, that breathes breath into your life when you are born, is the same one who come to redeem you from sin. And this morning, I don't know what you're pursuing. I don't know what you're chasing in this room, but I know this. The only person that can ever fulfill that hole inside of you is Jesus. And today we've seen that he is worthy of all of it. So today I don't, I don't know what you're after. I don't know what counterfeits you've maybe grabbed. But I know one thing, you taste Jesus and you can say like the psalmist says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord, he is good. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today. And God, we're thankful that we have your word. God, something that we can hold God, that we can read, Lord, that the Holy Spirit can illuminate our minds. But God, it's not just a book. It is alive and powerful and quicker and sharper, as Hebrews says, in any two-edged sword. So God, I pray that today that the, the live word has gone out into the hearts of everybody in this room. And that God, the Holy Spirit will illuminate to their hearts God, what it is they need. And that, God, they would respond. Lord, we love you and we thank you today. God, it's all because of you. <laughs> we stand here today with strength in our legs to stand. 
air in our lungs to sing and might in our arms to raise for you. And God, we're just thanking you for that today. So whatever the need may be, God, we just ask you to do only what you can and that's work in the lives of everybody in the room. And we're gonna praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.